Welcome. This is Too Many Captains, a movie podcast, and you are listening to episode 77. My name is Johnny D, and it's my turn to pick the movie. I chose Galaxy Quest for our deep dive because Distant, the science fiction comedy from directors Josh Gordon and Will Speck, will debut in theaters this weekend. So I wanted to take a look at another movie from this specific subgenre that has since become a cult classic. I am, as usual, joined by the usual crew of wacky characters like Money Chris Hello. and Movie Matt. Hello. Unfortunately, Matty G was captured by evil aliens while on an away mission. <laughs> Probed. So we beamed aboard Ensign Derek Duvall for another guest appearance. <laughs> Welcome aboard, Derek. Thank you, everyone. Appreciate having me. So it was December 25th, 1999. We were all celebrating Christmas and worrying about Y2K. But what else was going on in the world? We'll take a quick rewind to someone who never surrendered and never gave up. That was Tori Murden. Tori Murden became the first woman to cross the Atlantic Ocean by rowboat alone when she reached the Galapagos Islands, coming all the way from the Canaries. Pretty badass. Wow. Things I never want to do. I know, right? Well, that mission succeeded on the same day another mission did not succeed. NASA lost radio contact with the Mars Polar Lander moments before the spacecraft entered the Martian atmosphere. On December 20th, Macau was transferred from the Portuguese Republic to the People's Republic of China. It's hence known as the gambling capital of the world. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to go, actually. Would be pretty cool. We also ended the year with Boris Yeltsin resigning as the president of Russia, which left the one and only evil leader, Vladimir Putin, as acting president. Mm. We know where that got us. Boo. A big, strong man. He beat me straight up. Pay him. Pay that man his money. All right, Galaxy Quest has a 90% tomato meter score and a 79% audience score. You don't see that very often with science fiction movies where the critics have a higher rating than the fans do. Mm. But normally it's the other way around where it's like, yeah, you know. Yeah. It didn't really win any major awards, but did pick up some of the various sci-fi specific film awards, like the Nebula Award and things mm-hmm. like that. There's... Several of them. Saturn or Saturn, yeah. There's a whole bunch of them, the planet names that (laughs) it won. And the movie made a total of $90 million on a budget of $45 million. That is enough to get four-day San Diego Comic-Con passes for 327,000 people. Nice. (laughs) I always want to know when they always say the budget. Does that include like the marketing budget that goes into it? Or is it actually just the production budget? Good question. Varies. Yeah, I think it just depends on... Whatever whatever statistic makes you look better. Yeah. Probably. Or worse, depending on who you're telling. Mm. Yeah. I am a star. I'm a star, I'm a star, I'm a star. I am a big, bright, shining star. 
<laughs> now for the casting couch. No surprise, season four continues to be a monster for hashtag Team Turkey, and a particularly great one for the ladies today. Our first inductee is... I'm pretty sure that you called me a Jive Turkey. No, no, now, Lou, nobody called anyone a JT. Jive Turkey is a little over the line, my man. Look. Sigourney Weaver. First, she was Dana Barrett in Ghostbusters and then the director in The Cabin in the Woods. Today, she is Gwen DeMarco. Our second inductee is (laughs) Daryl Miller. We were introduced to him as Mr. Morgan in 10 Things I Hate About You and later as Officer Rourke from Inside Man. And today is Tommy Weber. Our third inductee is... Missy Pyle. You may remember her as Mildred in Big Fish or Mrs. Fowler from Deidre and Laney. But today she was the lovable alien Lalari. And I know this is a lot of info, but we also have a prior inductee who is making his fourth appearance or quadumvirate. Four. Friend of the show, Sam Rockwell, as the red shirt Guy Fliegman. This movie was composed of an eclectic mix of people famous from other TV and film roles, but also included a couple of film debuts from Justin Long and Rain Wilson. What are the thoughts did you guys have about the cast? Solid cast. I uh, thought it, you know, it was funny. I randomly had watched Santa Claus just a (laughs) few weeks earlier. Sure. And um, it's, it's a Christmas favorite at the, uh, Movie at Movie Mashley House, we'll say. Yeah. It reminded me of this, that in space, mm-hmm. kind of, especially the beginning of the film. I liked the cast overall. Justin Long's debut, uh, we kind of laughed when we saw him in there at the beginning. It was funny. I read that uh, Tim Allen was not the first pick. He was not the second pick, not the third pick. He was way down there, and there was some uh, consternation uh, among the producers. Somebody quit, right? Yep. Harold Ramis. Yeah. I watched the documentary today for the, the Never Give Up, Never Surrender documentary, and they said Tim Allen was sitting there, you know, giving a recollection of the events, and he was him, the Jeffrey Katzenberg from DreamWorks, and Harold Ramis, and they're having a dinner, and Harold Ramis looked across the thing and was like, I don't want you in my movie. You weren't my first choice, my second choice, my third choice, and Tim Allen kept looking at Jeffrey Katzenberg like, this is awkward. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that was the thing. They were like sold on Mr. Santa Claus. And they're like, well, if you don't like it. And hell, Ramus, who, you know, doesn't have a bad word about anybody. It's just like, you know, no harm, no foul. I'm out. Yeah. So I'm not a big Tim Allen fan by any means, but I do think this is a pretty good performance from him. He was very familiar with the idea of somebody who was really identified with a particular TV series. And then kind of where do you go with your career after that? So I think I think it worked. I thought Tim Allen was an interesting pick too because of the typecasting. Mm-hmm. And so many people are typecasted in sci-fi roles, yeah. especially Star Trek. And I thought that was kind of an interesting parallel in and of itself. Well, the one that got me was when they were going through the documentary list of the people they actually tried. And they actually asked the fans like, hey, these were the original picks. What do you think? And they were all like, no. And the, mm. the big one was first it was Kevin Klein, yeah. Then That's yeah. a weird one. Alec Baldwin and Mel Gibson. Mm. Pre-DUI yeah. Mel Gibson, yeah. by the way. 
And um, that might come up later. I think Mel could have been interesting. The other two, I, I don't know, maybe. Apparently, according to the thing, too, Alec Baldwin campaigned heavily. Like, he really wanted that role. I, he could do it. Yeah, he him. probably could. Yeah. Slightly odd casting comment. Alan Rickman, we have done Galaxy Quest and we have done Dogma. So the two movies released the same year oh, wow. that he was in. Yeah. We did a deep dive on those. Yeah. Something about that whole Harold Ramis connection. I'm wondering if that's not kind of when Sigourney signed on with the connection from Ghostbusters. That makes sense. Because mm. it does seem like this is below her, but I think she enjoyed the idea mm-hmm. of being like, I think she was talking, you know, her character in that in the opening scenes talking about how they weren't interested in her character. They just wanted to talk about her looks and things like that. I think that came from a lot of experience she had through the Aliens franchise and dealing with Hollywood people not really treating female actors the same way. For now begins the Inquisition! The Inquisition. Let's begin the Inquisition. And this is the Inquisition. Off with your heads. So I've got a question, a trivia question from the film. And any of the captains... As soon as you know it, jump right in. Which scene in this film mirrors a scene that William Shatner says actually happened in his life, in his real life? Is it the uh, way he yelled and snapped at the fans? No, No. when he's peeing and somebody's talking about how he's a joke. Dangerous has got it. Yes. William Shatner says he went through a similar experience at a a convention doesn't say which one in 1986. Wow. Yeah. He still remembers. <laughs> he still has a perm. He's still crying in that bathroom. He's like Michael Jordan. This was personal for me. Yeah. That's when he was like, I'm going to do Boston legal. <laughs> yeah. Great show. I'll show you guys. I'm going to really learn show. how to be. Host. Yeah. What the hell am I looking at? When does this happen in the movie? Now you're looking at now, sir. Everything that happens now is happening now. What happened to then? We passed that. When? Just now. Wear it now, now. Go back to then. When? Now. Now? Now. I can't. Why? We missed it. When? Just now. You've waited patiently. It's time for the narrative breakdown. Setting the scene. A long time ago, in a galaxy not so far away, there was a popular science fiction television show, Galaxy Quest. Led by their non-Captain Kirk commander, Peter Quincy Taggart, five brave astronauts travel the galaxy, doing good deeds, righting wrongs, and fighting evil wherever they may find it. In the real world, 20 years later, the disillusioned actors of Galaxy Quest make their livings traversing the globe and meeting fans at conventions honoring their show. Sir Alexander Dane, Gwen DeMarco, Fred Kwan, and Tommy Weber resent their current place in their careers, while the star of the show, Jason Nesbeth, revels in the attention and holds onto that last bit of stardom for all it's worth. In private, Jason is also alone and resentful of his lot in life, having been pushed the people he loves away with his arrogance and Shatner-esque pompous behavior. So I really enjoyed the efficiency at which they, they show Jason being like all about his life and then how quickly, you know, there's like he figures out that his castmates don't like him, that the fans maybe think he's kind of a joke. And, you know, before you know it, he's at home drinking alone and sad and everything like that. In order to keep this movie tight, to, to you know, to, to really get to the comedy and get through that, to have his character arc just 
in five minutes. You think he's this guy, and then you figure out he's this guy, and I thought that was really well done. So uh, do you have a question? You were talking about him drinking at home. Do you think he was wearing underwear? No, no. <laughs> All right, so... <laughs> Like, are you saying like in the movie or the actor? In the movie. In the movie, he was not wearing underwear. Because he <laughs> bends looking? way over. Yes. <laughs> he bends way over to look for his shoe and they are looking at him. Yes. And I'm sitting here going like. <laughs> They're exploring are they just, his nether galaxy. <laughs> are they looking at his black hole? Yes, they were. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that was, I was like, oh man, like this is really like, is he supposed to be nude in this scene? Because this is really gross at this point. But it also <laughs> it also gives some credit. So you also get a lot of character development in the first, like, 10 minutes. You got, you know, Alexander. He is this, you know, not washed up Shakespearean actor. And in the credits, Sir Alexander Dame. Mm-hmm. Even though in the, in the documentary, he said he didn't want that, but they kept it anyway. And you got Gwen. She's kind of like, I have, you know, I'm just here. I'm like the sex appeal and what yep. have you. And then Tommy and then you got Fred. And they're just kind of like, all right, well, I'm here to catch a check. Yeah, You know, like they're just so over it all and what have you. But the cool thing is, and you learn it later on, we'll get to that in a minute, is Guy, their handler, he walks in on their autograph scene and he's like, can I get in on a sign? You don't remember me. It's the glasses, right? You know, and like, you just really, you remind me of a car salesman. Mm -hmm. You know, like a really sleazy car salesman. One of the things about Guy is that if you notice, he's like, hey, you know, I was in an episode two. Can I just sign some autographs? And so he sits down and then you see the next scene, he's got a whole like jumpsuit on, like he's part of the cast. <laughs> I didn't see that. So yeah, it like goes from him being just kind of like, oh yeah, I'm going to just going to sit down here to him being in full blown yeah. like costume. And I was mm-hmm. like, that's really weird. Never would have picked him to win an Academy Award years later. I'll tell you that because he was Great. coming right out of Green Mile when he did this movie. He was literally coming from that set to do Galaxy wow. West and people, he was like, apparently when I was watching the documentary, he did not want to do it. He's one of my favorites. I love Sam Rockwell. When Jason is approached by a bizarre group of calling themselves the Thermians, what was a mis- what was a misunderstanding as a guest appearance turns into an interstellar negotiation with a renegade alien warlord named Saris, and through Jason's reckless attitude, a war. Realizing that he has in fact partook in a Star War, Jason tried to recruit his resentful co-stars, relenting. They, too, are beamed aboard the real-life NESA protector, along with their handler guy, a former cast member who anonymously met a gruesome death, modeled after the Thermians' devotion to the television show, which they mistook for real life, and call them the historical documents. Reluctantly, the crew portray their on-screen counterparts and meet Saris in battle. Their ship is crippled from their inexperience. The crew seek out a new power source on an alien world in which Jason sacrifices himself so his crew can escape scary alien miners. His shirt removed, Jason must do battle, but is beamed aboard the protector by Scotty, I mean Fred. (laughs) Realizing that their ship has been captured, Saris tortures the leader of the Thermians and forces Jason to reveal the truth about himself, his castmates, and the television show. Everything about, like their interactions with Saris in the first half of the movie. There's probably not any way to make this concept that's quite so far-fetched realistic, but I find it so convenient how easily somehow they escape this far more powerful thing, and then randomly he shows back up (laughs) at these intervals. It's kind of like, I feel like the conflict would either win or lose, and it's like, we got away, and we got away again easily, somehow. And then somehow they crippled get away and then they're back in and he keeps showing up and it's like, all right, 
If he's that bad, he'd just kill them all when he got them once, you know, but it's a middling complaint. I know, I know it's far-fetched. I want to know is where Saris learned how to speak English. Very good English as well. <laughs> yes. Well, because he's English. No, that's true. And <laughs> so he was played by Robin Sachs, who also played Ethan Rain on Buffy. Oh. And he also was in Babylon 5 where he played another alien. Okay. So no uh, stretch for him. A lot of experience. So he has some, some yeah, he very, played several aliens. Very versatile actor. Several I wondered if even his, well. his um, the front of his mouth was under his control or that had to be like radio operated yeah. because it, of the, feel, the it felt like it was a callback to episode one. When yeah. the first thing you see those creepy aliens, they like the mouths weren't moving with their words. It was like, oh, I, yes. I remember seeing that. I was like, what am I got myself into here? So how could George Lucas do this to us? It's also funny how much extra creature design goes into his character versus everybody <laughs> else. This is like all intricate. And he's yeah. got like moving things, tentacles on his head and stuff. Right. And Robin actually died in 2013 oh, in a spaceship that. explosion <laughs> of his heart. He okay. Heart I was like, he had a heart attack. <laughs> spaceship, Wait, that's what? amazing. Condemned to death. Our heroes look deep into their souls and realize they can actually be the heroes. Their fans always believe they could be recapturing the ship. And with some fancy driving by Tommy and a suicidal strategy from Jason, they successfully destroy Saris's ship. Realizing they must return home, they are taken by surprise by Saris, who was transported to the Protector as his ship was exploding. Realizing an early bit of foreshadowing, Jason activates the cryptic Omega-13, resetting time back 13 seconds, enough time for Jason and the Thermians to disable Saris. Utilizing the help from their beloved fans who earlier helped them negotiate the many bizarre twists and turns of the belly of the ship, they successfully crash land at a Galaxy Quest convention. As an adoring crowd welcomes a hero's home, Saris appears, but Jason saves a day like the commander he always knew he could be and kills him. The crash landing and putting fans in mortal danger sparks enough interest to commission a Galaxy Quest reboot. The adventures continue. Tune in next week. So two things. One, I really enjoyed the the mashers portion mm-hmm. where they're like who designed this what like yeah. screw these writers because that's very true that there's like ah oh, there's just a random masher here yeah. on the ship and then they really so when they f- started out with the convention it was very low-key it was like it was kind of like a 70s convention it's kind of a low level like if you're gonna have a convention in tulsa it mm-hmm. wouldn't be quite that nice but yeah. close to that but then when the spaceship comes in that's like San Diego Comic Con style shit right there. <laughs> well, it's somehow like, it grew during yeah. the course of them not being there. Well, I mean, it's like this. I mean, it's like this movie is a love letter to the fans, and it's not. It could be Star Trek. It could be Star Wars. It's mostly for Star Trek, but it's like you know when you're a kid, and all of a sudden it's like you know Captain Kirk needs your help, to, and you're the only one in the galaxy that can help the Enterprise right now. That is right, basically, like what this movie is geared toward. Like this fan was like called up. You know, it's like I, I can do this. I can help you. You know, like this. And that's amazing, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's really tapped into something very, very primal in everybody who has any passing love of these franchises. My issue is that it's such a classic monster movie trope is you make sure the bad guy's dead. Yeah. And they get jump scared twice. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, be like, I'd be like just blasting that guy until he disappeared, <laughs> like stabbing away. Like, no. Put him in handcuffs. Whatever you got to do is just like, well, 
eh, he's probably he's probably dead. I'm like, come on. You know, it's funny. My wife watched this movie for the first time in her life yesterday, and she I, she was like, I don't want to see this. It looks easy. It looks stupid. And she ended up loving it. But the part that I got her to laugh the most was not, it was so off kilter from everything else. It was the scene where uh, Justin Long's character is helping him out and what have you. And he's like this. And all of a sudden they're like, Jason, you know, like the call in. He's like, and he's like, take out the trash. Like yes. That, that is one of the most genius cutaways yes. I have ever seen in a comedy. Ever. And they set it up. I didn't even realize I watched it twice this yeah. week and. The first time I didn't notice it, the very first time we see him in the house, the mom sticks her head in and says, take out the trash. And he's like, I'll do it in 10 minutes or give me 10 more minutes. And he's just gluing a model. And then that happens. And then she comes back. And And I thought it was hilarious, you know, as a parent being yeah. like, it doesn't matter what you're doing. That was <laughs> setting you a that time limit. You're going to do it joke. now. It yeah. really was. It was trash night for us. So I had to run out during the movie <laughs> and take out the trash. I think I missed that scene, but it makes a lot of sense. So... Would your mom make you do that? Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, not my mom. <laughs> I will say this though, before before I forget one thing. I can see why movie Matt here loves this movie. I hope you know the reason why. Well, no, it's a hundred and two minutes long, which is about a hundred and five minutes of his just where he just stops about giving <laughs> shit about long movies. <laughs> so well done, sir. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, it, with the COVID, I don't know how long anything is anymore. <laughs> So um, time no longer means anything. Yeah. You know, but good, good thinking. And and we'll see when movie mass review is revealed. Fair enough. So uh, a couple of the things I wanted to bring up. One is I've talked many times on the podcast about Chekhov's gun. The idea, if something is introduced, if they make a point of something, it's going to come back. This was Chekhov's time machine. Yeah. (laughs) The simple fact of them, announcing this 13 seconds and even and uh jason even has that line he's like long enough to fix one mistake but when i was thinking about it i was like it's weird because when he presses the device he's the only one who remembers what happens 13 seconds before so are we supposed to believe that only whoever presses down the lever experiences the time because I don't know. Wouldn't maybe, everybody? I don't maybe know. that is explored in Galaxy Quest, the continuing adventures. <laughs> could be. I hope so. <laughs> and then my other one isn't really, it's not about the plot or anything, but it, it's about the process of movie making. I caught two real obvious uh, moments of ADR. And the second one, you guys may have noticed it because it was in the scene you were just talking about right before the the mashers. Yeah. She literally says, well, fuck that. Like her mouth says that and her voice says, well, screw that. What is ADR? I know this. Audio digital rendering. It's where the voice doesn't yeah, match it's 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 it's, more, it's basically where if if they do a scene and like maybe there's like wind or it was a car on the back they bring the actor in and they basically re-record the line because they put it up on so in the scene. moment the director's like got it well and then they're editing and they're like fuck we can't hear the voice pretty much yeah. it means one of two things either automated or additional dialogue replacement but they're both very obvious replacements of the f word yeah. and it had to do with them obviously needing to maintain a PG-13. Yeah. And I know it's varied over the years, but usually you get one. And I think this might have been before you got one because I couldn't think of another one that actually does happen, but there's one at the beginning and one at the end. But maybe it's because of the limitations of this particular production, but I feel like most movies now, they go ahead and they record two versions of it. They Mm. send the one that they want and then they slowly 
negotiate with the MMPA. I send them another one and be like, okay, we cut out another word. We cut out another word. Can we get the the rating that we want to where you don't know as the audience, but in this, it was pretty obvious. Oh, yeah. If you, you don't even have to even look at her mouth. You can definitely tell it was, no. it's ADR to hell. <laughs> yes. But do you think they took some liberty with like the fact that it is the whole thing is a bit of a sci-fi spoof? Yeah. Like, I mean, they obviously like, you know, I mean, remember the old Star Trek films? Yeah. You know episodes even more than the films like they took a little bit of liberty on not being as precise as needed maybe you know yeah they ran with some well it wouldn't work as well on this because these are supposed to be these are normal human beings but in a bunch of other sci-fi series what they've done is they've created alien curse words which they can say firefly the chinese yes like they can use they can use a fake curse word but slowly the audience knows that frack. whenever they say frack, frack. that means yeah. <laughs> something that and then they can say it as much as they want. So yeah. it's whatever you can get past the sensor. Yeah. If you're not, if you can't get past the sensor, you're not trying hard enough. Yep. It'll be interesting how 20 years from now we look back at Netflix films that don't necessarily have this level of critique in what becomes the next level of cult classics. Yeah. Right. Well, and if you go straight streaming now and you don't have a theatrical release, you don't ever have to get an MMPA. Yeah. So if this had gone to directly to a streamer, they would have left those F words in and it would have been funnier. Well, you know, this is something they can, they can watch with their kids. They don't have to worry about anything being vulgar or anything like that. And I get that. I am not a monster. I get that. But I, I think there's a whole market for that. Like, why can't I click on a freaking movie and be like, why isn't there just a Two watch versions. with my yeah. kids button? Yeah. Like we have these like, you know, yeah. ratings, which are actually pretty cumbersome and non-user friendly, really. Cause like, what the fuck does. And not very mean? consistent. Yeah. And not consistent. Mm-hmm. It's like watch with my kids. If I'm a religious person, watch with my kids. If I'm a normal person, watch, you know, <laughs> watch with my buddies. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. We're going to overtime. We'll be right back with breaking news and exclusive interview and some of the best captain content you've ever heard. Stay tuned. And we're back and better than ever. Something on your mind? Just want to let you know you're sitting in my chair. <laughs> Is that a fact? Yeah, it's a fact. Hello, everyone. <laughs> we are going to talk about the director. <laughs> offend everybody who listens to our show. <laughs> All the Thermians. I'm aliens. <laughs> the Thermians. The, so many Thermian listeners. My gosh. Uh, can we not even do fake accents anymore? <laughs> Oh my just god! Cancelled on Thermania. <laughs> the director is Oscar winner Dean Parizo. Oscar winner? Yes. Which surprised the hell out of me. Is that a short film? Yes. Yes. So in 1988, he won Academy Award for Best Live Action Short Film for The Appointments of Dennis Jennings. Classic. <laughs> I, I assume <laughs> I lined up for that one. Yeah. So still. Pretty amazing. Yeah. To I mean, I haven't won <laughs> yet. 
I mean, so te- yeah, yet. yeah. But from like movies versus sports, like I've never had an NFL player score a touchdown on me. True. So I'm doing better than most cornerbacks in the NFL. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. Wow. I mean, okay. you know, All right. I like that. I'm just That's saying. Good. Whereas, in order to get an Oscar, you have to do something. Yeah. Trouble. And actually succeed. I've mentioned this nearly all of my reviews. <laughs> Doing something is yes key. Although you could just like every time we have a director who hasn't won an Oscar, you could be like, I have the same number of Oscars as this it's guy. True, exactly. <laughs> Dean graduated from New York University Tisch School of the Arts. Nice. Didn't have an year associated with that he has been involved with a lot of great television shows directing episodes here and there he did the pilot for monk he has done several episodes of reading rainbow northern exposure Mm. er modern family the good wife the tick curb your enthusiasm really good his last film he directed was bill and ted face the music that's Mm. right before that he did red two okay before that, he did Fun with Dick and Jane. Then he did Galaxy Quest. We're going back in time. Backwards. And then his first feature film was Home Fries with Luke Wilson and Drew Barrymore. I remember that one. So this was only his second feature? Yes. Home Fries was one of those movies that was in, I think, the video stores around the time I was working. In the video stores. So I always saw the box with Drew Barrymore and Luke Wilson on the front. And... I was like, I wonder what that movie's about. And I never watched it. Yeah. Where are they? Choose between one life or the other. Your friend, the district attorney. Or his blushing bride to be. (laughs) (sighs) (laughs) You have nothing. Nothing to threaten me with. Nothing to do with all your strength. Don't worry. I'm going to tell you where they are. Both of them. And that's the point. <laughs> I'll tell you where they are. They're in Los Angeles. Because <laughs> that's go. where movies are made. And that's where we're going to go right now in the best segment of the show. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, this film. It was, it's like obviously just like a lot of it's in a set in LA. Um, but I want to narrow in on some certain, you know, things. Okay, so Jason's house is the stall house in the Hollywood Hills. It's been used in a lot of films, a lot of TV shows. It's a gorgeous house. Like, you look at the shot in the film. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, it. the house was designed by Pierre Koenig. The house is on the National um, Historic Register. I mean, it's freaking awesome, right? Like, I get, like, that shit's just badass. How much is it worth? Uh, so Zillow says 1.7 million, but I think that's Way more. a gross underestimate. Yeah, it hasn't been; it it's never been publicly for sale. They have their own website, and it looks like we could schedule a tour and go visit next time we're in LA. So. Captain's on vacation. That's right. Whenever me and uh, Nick Offerman hanging out again in LA, we'll <laughs> stop by. There you go. In 99, the house was declared to be on the Los Angeles Historic Cultural Monument. Nice. In 2007, the American Institute of Art Architects listed the Stahl House as number 140 of the 150 top structures in America. 
All right, so let's jump to the other notable scene in the at least the only noted scene filmed outside of California is when he is on uh, when they're on the the planet. Yeah, and I'm blanking and I didn't put in my notes on the, what they call the planet. I don't think I they actually named the planet. I don't know. I don't they said they a nearby planet or yeah, moon yeah, or something. Alien like world. That. Yeah, you got it's, got off on this one. Goblin Valley State Park uh, in Utah. Nice. So Mormon country. Mm-hmm. They be goblin. <laughs> it does. Like if you look at the pictures, if you look it up on uh, Wikipedia. I mean, like if you were like, I gotta film like an alien landscape. You don't get much better than that. No, it it looks beautiful and. Guys, we can camp there for $35 a night. Let's do it. I'm in. on location. (laughs) Totally in. It's right off these losses with some trips. (laughs) (laughs) I've learned a lot about tax law lately. (laughs) Apparently, I've been foolishly claiming to make money. Captain's on vacation. The Hollywood Palladium is where they shot the convention scenes. Nice. And if we go buy tickets today... Sunday, January 29th, we can go see Bush live in concert. Wow. I have seen Bush, and they are quite good. I have, too. I'd go to that. I'd, General admission, $45 a ticket. I used to see a lot more Bush, but it feels like it's gotten less popular over the recent years. Yeah. Wow. Like, from, yeah. The casting, uh, from the head of the that's, casting couch. That's wow. from the head of the casting couch over there. Jeez. <laughs> uh, <laughs> In the nineties, Bush was everywhere. I'm if, sure it was. If the tickets are only forty five dollars, they'll probably be at the Hard Rock soon. <laughs> All right, folks. The master tunage manager is indisposed. You got stuck with Derek Duvall talking about the, the music this week. All right, so the composer of this magnificent film is David Newman. Of the Newman family composer royal family, Thomas, David, and Randy. Epitism. Uh, anybody here a big fan of Thomas Newman? Because I know I am a yes. massive fan of Thomas Newman. A veteran of film scores with over 100 credits to his name. He has done such scores for such films as Heather's. Bill and Ted, Excellence Adventure, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter is Dead, Coneheads, Serenity, I know you like that film, and most notably helped arrange new compositions for Steven Spielberg's remake of West Side Story. So this is Thomas you're talking about, and that is the uncle of who we're talking about today? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But that's not all. He also did the score for what could be Movie Matt's all-time favorite film. Oh no! What 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 is it? The Mighty Ducks. Oh wow! Did he really? <laughs> yeah, he did. Oh damn! All right, okay, okay. So during production, well done, Newman was wanting to create a Star Trek esque theme song for the actual Galaxy Quest TV show, but also went for much fuller orchestra to showcase the vastness of space and the space battles. The producers and the composer thought a grand, over the top score in parts. Uh, would help bring out the self-awareness of it. Also of note, and I had to do some Googling of my own on this, uh, his composition for the death of Quellick is known amongst the Galaxy Quest faithful as their most famous favorite piece of the score 
with some going online to do their own takes on that scene, like with guitar, or they'll play like the oboe or something like that. So it's pretty cool. It's insane. So is Quellick the one who is like the? He was obsessed with um, Doctor Lazarus. Gotcha. Yeah. He was like his fanboy. Yeah. Who had somehow learned his yeah. skills and yeah. hidden himself with his stealth and stuff. I, I always love the little parts. He goes, I hope you don't think I'm being too forthcoming, but I always thought of you as a father who I've never met. I was sitting there like, what? <laughs> That's a little intense. <laughs> yeah. But no, the score is fantastic. Uh, it, honestly, I haven't watched the movie in a long time. I actually went and, and, and tried to buy it. So I'm, I'm going to probably have it in my collection. Nice. So, yeah. Well, that little clip that we just listened to before your segment, you know, it's very believable. Early 80s mm-hmm. era yeah. sci-fi classic. And I think they knocked it out the park. Yeah. It, it's, it sounds like an actual theme song. I think it sounds very similar to the Orville theme. And there's even some like YouTube mashups and things like that. Out there. Well, I mean, it's pretty good. I really appreciated the the theme music. It it to me brought together a lot, kind of like KRDO CBS uh, thirteen Colorado Springs intro music back in the nineties. A little bit of PBS NewsHour, some Star Trek. It tied it all together. Maybe a little bit of a Space Force uh, recruitment video. All of that, wow. like you know, I, I appreciated that. It felt aspirational. Um, to me and yeah they, they just, just need to take the trailer for the show as steve carell and then it's a space force recruitment yeah. video did it make Pretty you want much. to go down to a recruitment office and sign up no but <laughs> you know would you like to know more i'm too old yeah but if you'd like to know more this is another sponsorship opportunity <laughs> here on the show Manscaped or space force we're here for you anyway just sorry. for our listeners uh, Matt is still recovering from a pretty intense case of COVID. <laughs> so if anything he said didn't make sense today, please write it off. <laughs> that was good. I, okay. I got you. I got you. That's Matt. fair. That's fair. You. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Thank you, Derek. Here's Johnny. Today we viewed the work of Polish cinematographer Jerzy Zielinski. He joins countrymen Kaminsky, Bart Kowak, and Sekula in the deep dive. I think I have mentioned it before, but do any of the captains remember why so many major Hollywood cinematographers come from the relatively small Central European country of Poland? Free labor? <laughs> no. Good guess. <laughs> Fast internet? <laughs> Fast internet. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know their internet. The speeds. nation's VHS camera and camcorder. <laughs> well, unfortunately, those none of those are correct. But there are kind of two reasons. First is they have an outstanding national film school in Lodz. Second is that it kind of became trendy to hire poles when a few were successful and likely made way for other people from camera and lighting departments to step up as cinematographers. So basically Kaminsky becomes a big name and everybody who works under him steps up and they start becoming cinematographers and so on. Is Kaminsky like a common name like Jones? And Well, um, Kaminsky is the guy who does almost all of Steven Spielberg stuff. Ah, we just talked about him in Munich. I don't know if you recall that, but this was actually the second of three pairings with director Dean Parasote. The first was on, uh, 
ATF. And the last was on Fun with Dick and Jane. Zelensky never became a household name, but worked on 16 films between 1988 and 2012. This was probably one of his biggest hits. A few others you may recognize include Teaching Mrs. Tingle, Bubble Boy, Dodgeball. I love Dodgeball. And SpongeBob SquarePants movie. <laughs> wow. Now, at the ripe old age of 72, he appears to be enjoying his retirement from filmmaking for the past 10 years. Captains, what was your take on the visuals? Should this Zelensky unseat that Ukrainian comic for Times Man of the Year? Yes. Can, can I say one thing? <laughs> There's the Zelensky joke that you were looking for. Uh, I will say this. Uh, the opening scene where they shot the the intro for the you know Galaxy Quest in the four three mm-hmm. spectrum in the TV world it's it's the square and as you can pan out to the real world you get into anamorphic and what have you nice and I I love that was genius cinematography right there right to sh- yeah. to do the shift live like yeah. that there's a lot of alcohol in those same atoms <laughs> <laughs> I want to give I want to give the real Zelensky the Omega thirteen. <laughs> 13 seconds backwards. Yeah, we can go back okay. a year ago. And yeah. We'll see what's I don't think 13 seconds, seconds is enough. For this well, point. the right yeah. time. Yeah, maybe. Uh, well, it's time for my uh, favorite visual. This movie isn't quite uh, the visual masterpiece of some of the others that we have recently covered, but I did like some of the visuals. I think my favorite was probably when Brandon and the other nerds are in the parking lot uh, shooting Roman candles and holding the communicator overhead and the protector soars just over their heads and crashes into the building. That's pretty sweet shot there. When the nose of the aircraft was hitting the inside, there's a spacecraft, I should say hitting the inside of the spaceport. How did it correct enough that the fucking wings, which are way further, which are way further out, didn't take out like a huge part of it. Movie it was Ash problematic. saw that at the beginning of the film movie, was like, this magic. is ridiculous. Yes. This whole film's ridiculous. It, it should have been like the outer, I don't know, what is it, starboard or port wing <laughs> yeah. that should have been scraping starboard. rather than the nose. Starboard. Yeah. Is when you're watching that scene of him pulling the ship out of the port, and then all of a sudden you start watching like Tim Allen, like, <laughs> yes. Like that shift of the head, yeah. for people who can't see this, that shift of the head. Yeah. It's like, Okay. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, 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 All right. Yeah. Interesting. Like yeah. that, and he's like, he's just sitting there, like, right there, just wide. Oh, dude, that was a great. That's a great shot. And that, you hear that? Yes. Sound. Oh, so great. that scene is all about the laugh and not about the logic. Once yeah. again, <laughs> yeah. that sound yeah. is like true horror, and that yeah. I can, <laughs> like it puts this film in the horror category for yeah. me. Yeah. Anyway. <gasps> you. Choo choo choose me? Happy Valentine's. <laughs> I don't All even right. know what that is. It's, it's from from Captain's Simpsons. Choice, where we each pick a film that we feel like if you enjoyed Galaxy Quest, you should check this out next. And I am up first today. My choice is similar because it deals with a normal human who is suddenly made aware of the presence of aliens and superior technology when they are taken to space to deal with a galactic crisis. In addition, it features both Sam Rockwell and a voice performance by Alan Rickman. 
The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy from 2005. As a brilliant film based on the radio broadcast novels and comics of the same name. Have you guys seen this weird movie from an era where big budget comedy could not only be made, but also be both critically and financially successful? I was texting Christy. What movie was it again? <laughs> Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Ah, yes. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Don't forget to bring a towel. Yes. But this was on my list of things that I was like, ah, oh, you know, if you like this, you might like this. It's a, it's a spoof of itself. Mm-hmm. I was wondering the impression was one of those movies that just could never be made into a film because it was just the literal adaptation was be almost impossible to do. It's it, weird, but I think that I didn't read the book, but I feel like I think they were successful mm-hmm. that they it's one of those. We just did something not too long ago that was basically considered to be impossible to be adapted. Mm-hmm. And somehow it works. It's, I think it's pretty funny, and I think if you laughed at this, I think you would laugh at that. I'll it, check it out one day. I haven't. I, it's never been on my list. It's one of those likewise. movies that it's confusing that it's not a cult classic because the book basically is. Yeah, and I thought that they did a good job getting the themes from the book across. It'd be one of those things that people would be still kind of watching and discussing, but it's kind of like it happened and it's gone. Yeah. Derek, what was your choice? All right. My choice. The 1998 blockbuster film, The Truman Show, which is a reverse, as in the whole world is populated by actors. Mm. One person who's not in on the game. Okay. So um, easily, in my opinion, Jim Carrey's greatest film. And, and I was talking to Manny G about this earlier today. I consider it to be probably the most prophetic film ever made because it predated reality TV. That's a really good pick. And it also predated TikTok and social media and, and yeah, social media yeah. and all that. And uh, yeah, that's a good pick. But no, Truman Show is an absolutely fantastic film. Okay, money. Dazzle us with your choice. I went with 1987 Spaceballs. Ah, <laughs> right. Just, excellent choice. You know, you've got the spoof factor because it's spoofing something. you got the space adventure. Yep. You've got the, well, it just so happens that the, the spoof that they were making was based on Star Wars. So you've got the reluctant hero, so to speak, of the whole story and things like that. So that's why I picked Spaceballs. I'm surprised nobody else picked it. I also was like, is movie Matt got the wrong year going on? Oh, no. No, movie I, Matt I don't think he does. I, I, think, I think he's going somewhere else. I... Love the movie Spaceballs. It's one of my favorites. Now there's a 4K. Oh, really? I might have to get 4K that. 4K digital anyway. Oh. All right, Movie Matt, you predated my 1987 film. What's your 1986? I know. I felt like uh, I came up with a good find here. I went with the 1986 film Star Trek for the Voyage Home. Yes. Nice. I knew it. I knew yes. it. Yes. Did so, not see that coming. So, you know, you've got that connection of like, space and the future and all that and just like real world today and a you time know? travel element and the yes. time travel element yeah. all of that there i freaking i love star trek for the voyage I home do too. i think one. it is one of the best star trek films and you know i'm obviously biased i san francisco is my home away from home and and you see it it one of its 
most unique times in history that it might be returning to here uh, uh, with less people. Literally, I thought of it before even... It's why Dangerous will be proud of me for being one of the first ones to put this in the timeline. It just clicked for me before I even thought of what I was uh, uh, had for the podcast. So I love that movie. Yeah, I remember eighty six. It came out in eighty six. They have that little the pre uh, thing for the Challenger crew. But the part that always gets me is like, especially if you're aware of like Cold War politics. You got this Rusky going around going, "Can you tell direct me to the nuclear vessels yes. like that?" And yeah. this like cops looking like. It's just like this stone face, like, yeah. look, you know. I loved it. And I did love just, like, the blatant, like, what if the nuclear vessel? But yeah. It's like Aaron Sorkin-esque. <laughs> <laughs> like, just like, you know. Do you know what if I'd go there? Yeah. But do you know, what my, you know what my favorite part of the movie is, though? Is the part where he's in the hospital and Bones is like, like, how do you treat this? And he's like, put away your butcher knives. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, like, we're dealing with medievalism here, you know. Yep. <laughs> Do you still go to your computer and be like, computer? Like that, pick up your mouse and stuff like that? Computer? I do. Uh, no, I, 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 I'm like, hey, I do Siri. Hands. Hey, Siri. Hey, hey Siri. Hey, Siri. Hey, Siri. Hey, Siri. Siri. Hey, hey. Like, like every combination yeah. and then on the 20th. Keyboard. How quaint. I've heard you. Gosh. I will set the timer for three minutes. No, set it for fucking five minutes. It's, it's, All right, guys. Yeah. <laughs> We are Femians from the Klaatu uh, Nebula. Our people are being systematically hunted and slaughtered by Rathaceris uh, Fatukri. We are to meet in negotiation, however. Our efforts in this regard have been disastrous. Please, Commander, you are our last hope. <laughs> now it's time for the conclusions and ratings. And as always, we start from the lowest score to the highest score. Up first, we have Movie Matt. Oh, shocking. Okay, wow. so I liked this film. It was good. Uh, they did several things that are like in the baseline for me. They completed a project, which is like a lot of people don't do that, guys. A lot of people don't do that. So they did that, um, and it was also like uh, coherent. So it came together. Um, I do struggle with rating films like this. It was fun. I really liked it. It was really good. I would never nominate this for best picture. Like not even close, right? All in, I'm going to give this one three captains. Solid, good film, entertaining. Nothing here is exceptional. 107 minutes. I appreciated the brevity. I would actually venture to say it was almost too long for what it is. I like that. I, I I mean, there's a time and a place, and, and sometimes it feels like you only want to be in the 90-minute zone. I thought it was clever, and the cleverness got it for me, took it from a 2.5 to a 3. All right, that brings us to our next rating. Johnny Dangerous, what did you think? Hmm. Well, I get to agree with Mui Matt. I'm excited. Wow. I am fairly certain that I saw this in theaters back in my college days when my friends and I would see basically anything <laughs> that looked remotely interesting. I do remember enjoying it at the time and seeing it a few more times over the years, likely like cable TV, things like that. I recently went ahead and purchased the Blu-ray for this review. 
As for legitimate complaints, there are some fairly reasonable ones. I mean, how does a culture make their technology based on a fake television series from a far less advanced civilization and then not gain perspective on why nothing else from these so-called historical documents don't line up with their own experiences of the universe? The CGI and creature design held up fairly well, and with the exception of the rock monster, I was pleased. The jokes and uplifting story have been the standout, and this stellar cast makes it all work out so satisfyingly and makes for a good movie. Per my previously stated standard, you always earn an extra half point in my rankings for being ranked 7th out of 12 in a list of series of movies that you are not an official part of. Galaxy Quest earns three cannibalistic, childlike mining aliens. Let's see, who's next? Hello, it's Chris. Who's this? Hey guys, sorry I couldn't be there this week, but uh, I wanted to ring in and let you guys know what I thought about this movie. Let us know what your score was on this. Galaxy Quest is actually a film that I haven't seen before. So uh, I was glad it was picked because, you know, it's been on the list and just haven't got to it. So watched it, uh, liked it a lot, thought it was fun. Interesting look at, you know, cons from back in, what was this movie? 99, I think. So, you know, this movie and another one we did, Chase and Amy, uh, kind of the first high profile movies to show that kind of thing in film, but I appreciated it and I liked it. It's probably not one that I would buy that I would purchase for myself. Uh, but you know, if I caught it, you know, flipping through channels or something, I would definitely stop and watch some of it. I give this film a 3.25 on the captain scale. Thanks guys. See you next week. All right, that brings me to me. So I enjoyed the convention type style. It's a little bit more 80s or so um, than probably today. It's kind of like if you were going to go to a convention in Tulsa, perhaps that was that would be like what you would get today. I enjoyed the fact that they kind of, kind of like this the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, the, Samar- the Samaritan Snare where they have the Paclids who are the kind of the dumb, like we are smart (laughs) aliens, except they're not assholes. They're nice. So they're, you know, they don't really understand things overall, but you know, they're, they, they were good hearted aliens. I thought that the arcs of the characters and the actors that they had, I mean, this had a really great cast. Yeah. Yeah. that ended up doing some great things later on. So, you know, they get a little bit extra there. I'm going to give it 3.5 captains. And that brings us to our highest score, Derek Duvall. Let us know what you thought. All right, folks. This is what Derek Duvall thinks. (laughs) Excellent third person to start. Loving it. All right. This movie is fun. It's something you can watch with your family. It has, in my opinion, the best Tim Allen uh, performance in his entire filmography. It's the second yeah. best Alan Rickman film. 
behind Die Hard. Wow. And the movie gave me two of my favorite quotes that I use in any kind of, you know, if you a thing. First one being by Grabthar's Hammer. What a savings. I love that part. <laughs> and the second one being, this ship is dragging mines. Which I, and you got to be a great actor to sell that last line. And Tim Allen kills that line. Um, but overall, it's it's well-written. It's a lot of fun. Uh, you can pick it up and watch it if it's on. And it's one of those movies like Shawshank Redemption. If it's on TV, you just put it on the background. You're not going to miss anything. So overall, I give it five captains. Never give up. Never surrender. What masterpiece, huh? Wow. I have a lot, a lot of questions there. Like Shawshank Redemption and Five Captains. I love you, Derek. But wait, what? All right, that brings us to three point six captains, bringing up the average there. Gotta love a Derek appearance, throwing in a masterpiece. Ah, this is this is why you gotta listen to the deep dive, everyone. This is where it's at. Oh, oh man, a wild card. <laughs> now that's what I call first rate. We have had a 3.6 before earlier this year on Munich and last year on Moana. It makes sense. It all adds up. That's a good, you know, yeah. Munich, Moana. Galaxy. Quest. I mean, it kind of does. I, I can see it. It works for me. What have we done? The crows have eyes. And you better not look them in. The crows have eyes. The crowening. All right, on our next deep dive, we see how long Mel Gibson can be around police officers before he calls one of them sugar tits. <laughs> he finds out if he has what it takes to be a single father after his wife splits. <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix is a swinger, and Abigail Breslin has whatever my wife <laughs> does. What? And then Abigail Breslin has whatever my wife has where she doesn't finish a drink. Oh, and the third McCulkin you just saw on a TV show's best gift is asthma, just like in real life. <laughs> I'm, of course, I'm, of course, talking about the 2002 M. Night Shyamalan oh, movie man. Signs. Look for that episode on February 7th. All right. Well, that brings to a close another episode of The Deep Dive. As always, we're going to end with one of our favorite quotes from the film. By Grabthar's hammer. Water savings. <laughs> Give him a hand, everybody. He's British. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll do my hands like this and. Let's <laughs> get out of here before one of those things kills Guy. <laughs> That concludes another deep dive from Too Many Captains. <laughs> you can find us on a moviepodcast.com as well as Instagram and Twitter. If you enjoyed what you heard today, subscribe, write a review, or post a link to your favorite episode on social media. Give us some feedback. It really does help. We will be back with another mini next week. And thanks for listening.